Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Claire Whittam and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Doug McNeil. Hello there. And Neil Robinson. Hiya. So firstly, we should apologise for the slight hiatus in Mostly Weather podcasts of late, but we're back with a vengeance now and are looking forward to monthly podcasts from now on. Do you guys know there's like a podcasting parlance for this? This is known as pod fading in the trade. Oh, really? So, so we've had a pod fade? Yeah, we've had a pod fade, but we're back. What, what's the, the anti-pod fade, is it? Pod, pod surge, yeah. <laughs> pod renaissance. Yeah, renaissance, I like it. Let's go for that. Very good. So we're going to start uh, off our, our new look pod surge with... Uh, today's episode which is on the subject of rain and we've invited along a special guest today to help us talk about this who is Lizzie Kendon. Hi Lizzie. Hello, hi. Could you give us just a brief introduction as to what your role here is and what, what you do in the Met Office? So um, I work with a leader team of people where we're running very very high resolution models um, to try and understand how rainfall will change in the future. So what I mean by very high resolution here is probably what um, people are more familiar as with the weather forecast model. So what, what we see on the day-to-day weather forecast, but up till now we haven't really used that for climate change because it is so expensive to run. But what we're really interested in is trying to understand how really extreme events change in the future and for that we really need these high resolution models. Super. So we are definitely going to dig into the details of this a bit later on, but I think we should start off perhaps in a bit more of a simple place, which is really with what is rain the wet stuff right it's uh, it's the wet it's okay we're, we're gonna play the game where you get a big buzzer if you say the wrong thing yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can tell claire's been researching this pretty pretty carefully so it's actually not as obvious as it seems i was gonna first, say okay right? water that comes from the sky in liquid form so that's the that's the thing isn't it right so it's got to come from the sky there's a subtle difference between a rain droplet and a cloud droplet right and yeah, the, the only difference is that the rain droplet is so big that it falls it actually falls okay and that's different again. So we're talking about fog in the past. Yeah. So yeah, again, rain is different to fog, but they're all different types of moisture in the atmosphere. So you think it's obvious. But... I know. I do feel a bit stupid though. You know, we're sitting in England and I'm asking the question, what is rain? And you know, <laughs> <laughs> the people on the street are just like, oh, it's that stuff that sorts of the sky. That's really annoying. <laughs> but what do we need to get rain to form and to fall? So we've done this, and I think there's a, there's a previous podcast, I should have looked up which one it is, but there's a recipe, right? There's three different ways, broadly speaking, that you can make rain. So one is that you can cool the air down by pushing it over a hill or something like that, which raises it higher up in the atmosphere. So that's called orographic precipitation. Yep. Uh, Doug, give us another one. Uh, there's convective rainfall, nice. where a, um, a parcel of air will go... Uh, be uh, warmed near the surface and, and, and travel up through the atmosphere and hit a point where it gets cool. Yeah, it's like a hot air balloon so or a lava lamp or something. Yeah. 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 And then the, the final one that we normally think about is maybe frontal rainfall, which is where, it's in a way, frontal rainfall is sort of like orographic precipitation because you're pushing air up and making it colder and that's why it rains, but you're pushing it over some other air to get it there, right? So, yeah, along these weather fronts where we've got different types of air butting up against each other, that's that gives us frontal rainfall. So those are three of the common ways we get rain, right? That's right. And the interesting thing about that is the different formation mechanisms kind of help us define between what we might mean as rain versus showers versus drizzle as well. So I think, you know, you think about rain and it's just falling all the time and it's quite widespread and heavy. And that's often what might be thought of as the frontal rain, which is, you know, if you see the weather maps on, on the television or, or on the website, you see these big fronts coming in often off the Atlantic because of where we are in the UK. And they, as you say, Neil, have, you know, different air masses behind them and that's what's bringing widespread rain and a lot of 
that country or a lot large areas are going to see rain. So this is this is where you get that rain that just seems to sort of last for hours and hours and hours. The kind of stuff I grew up with in Scotland, right? And uh, but but then that contrasts with this kind of convective rain, which is much more sort of short and sharp. So when you're out. Especially around this time of year, actually, and you get no, sort of no, what time of year is this time of, of year, Neil? Spring. <laughs> you get, you get this big... Just just for listeners uh, uh, later. So we, we've actually recently we've had some thunderstorms, right? Yeah. And um, sort of hail and thunder and um, these short, sharp showers. So those are kind of symptomatic of these more convective things, where where you have this this buoyancy, this instability in the atmosphere. You most often get it in yeah. summer, so it's it's convective generally dominates in summer you don't see so much in winter well it's like a hot air balloon right you need the heat in order to make something buoyant it's funny because i think we probably think of these really severe thunderstorms i guess the temptation is to think of that as being like winter and grizzly maybe sometimes i've spoken to people who've been surprised to hear that we get more of these thunderstorms in summer than in winter Oh, that's interesting. Whereas, yeah, as Lizzie says, it's much more of a summer phenomenon, isn't it? Because yeah. you need the heat in the land to be warming the air to allow that convection and that upward yeah. movement. And it's the upward movement and then cools the air, cools the moisture, you get the raindrops starting to fall and then eventually we get we get to rain. Should we, should we talk about, I've got some stats about what the weather is like in the UK. And yeah, like go rain for it. in the UK. So um, where do we think the wettest place in the UK is? Sorry? <laughs> Lizzie, Lizzie knows. I happen to know that Lizzie is a keen mountaineer, and that sounds like a mountain that station. That sounds like where I, yeah, it's where I go camping. So where's Capocuro? In Wales, Snowdonia. So do you know how much it gets off the top of your head? Oh, no. Quite... So in terms of regions, when I Googled this, we're looking at Argyll in Scotland as well. So I guess... Oh, this uh, is how big in... is Argyll? So this is... Is this... like a big region? Right? Yeah, it's, it's like, a huge region. I mean, I, I guess one particular station at Capocuro well, might... Well, this is the problem we always have with, like, observations, isn't it? Yeah. How do you define how much rain so we talk in rain of, of sort of depth of rain so that's the amount of it didn't drain away that would accumulate but then you're measuring it at one point or over a region and is it an average or is it like a one-off event and I, I love the fact that you measure rainfall in millimeters i think it's i think it's weird it's just a, a length of rain yeah. isn't it? or over time you, maybe you measure that but that's because it's a volume measured over an area yeah, so and you people, divide those out and you end up with one dimension so this is dimensional oh, analysis when, when, you learn, very odd. when you learn dimensional analysis you have like a physics level up and you become much more confident about things it's like uh, it's a bit of a revelation but it's hard but it's hard because it's it is uh it is inherently patchy right yeah uh, the, the way that rain falls the distribution it falls in is 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 inherently patchy it can be very super concentrated in a small place um uh, so you need to sort of aggregate over a large region so that's that's why i asked so so what's the what how much kind of rain do you think places in the uk get let's say like london that's where most people live around oh, there i haven't looked this up this is this is this is a tough one uh, um, so gonna, i reckon i don't know hundreds hundred of, mil- hundreds, hundreds of millimeters yeah small hundreds of millimeters so i think it's it's more right it's like 60 to 70 centimeters about okay and that's london that's that's london which okay. is pretty dry so as the uk goes yeah. isn't it? that's yeah. one of the drier places in the uk so there's places so we tend to get our weather from the west we've talked about this before so most of our heavy rainfall happens to be on the west coast so you go to east anglia and stuff it gets even drier still and, and i guess we should say that's that's to do with not only the weather coming in from the west but actually also the the topography so you know the height variation across the uk as a country and that most of the mountainous and higher regions are on the west coast so if you think of the welsh mountains cumbria well, let, let's, let, like, let's just name the t- off the top of our head the three wettest places, right? They're going to be Wales, Cumbria, and west coast of Scotland. And all of those are west of big mountain ranges, right? And that's no coincidence. And that's our orographic rainfall. But it's yeah. also the frontal stuff coming off of the oceans, isn't it? So it's the combination of both yeah. of them. So I, I've got, for our guile, um, on average, it gets about 2 metres, 20 centimetres. 
So that's quite really. Yeah, so that's quite a lot more yeah. than uh, than what London gets. Wow, four, so four, about four times as much. Yeah. yeah. So so just um, while we're at this, just in terms of context, who knows what the definition of a rainforest is? Oh, I should know. But it's I pretty, so it's, it's, is it, there's going to be a threshold of rainfall yeah, over, yeah, over right. which... So it's get, generally okay. agreed to be more than like 1.68, 1. 1.7 metres of rain. A year? Oh, hang on a minute. So if you yeah. moved <laughs> Argyle to a warmer place, yeah. you would have rainforest Yes, Yeah, I mean, so there's some other definitions <laughs> as well, like being a forest. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> but But, you know, the point is, there's quite a lot of rain in the UK, even in yeah, the scheme yeah, of things yeah. like a rainforest. It should be noted that some rainforests get like 10 metres of rain, right? Yeah, so, okay, <laughs> okay, but that's, that's the lower end. Yeah. So following on from your fact, then, Neil, what do we think is the most rainfall that's ever been recorded falling in the UK? Whoa. I, okay. Is there a time period associated with that? Is like a, oh, Lizzie knows. It's 24 hours, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and I can't remember how many millimetres it was, but it was 300 or something. Oh, very close, yeah. Nice. In, in Seathwaite, was it? I've got Honister Pass in Cumbria. Okay, okay yeah. About 341 millimetres. So do you know when it was, Lizzie? No. No, so... Uh, so maybe our stats are different, but you never know. So I've got that this was on the 5th of December 2015, so not that long ago. Oh, pretty recently. And it's when Storm Desmond oh. came through and brought widespread rain um, and storm force winds across northern England and Scotland. And that's, you know, that's when we saw this maximum amount in that period. So, you know, whether historically that quite stands up, we've obviously been only been making that detailed level of measurement yeah. in so many locations for so, not very long. So one thing I should say is obviously what you've been talking about there is mainly accumulated rainfall over a day or longer. When you look at like hourly rainfall, which is important for flash flooding, it's quite a different picture. So it isn't distributed on the most on the west so much. That's interesting. And yeah. it's um, typically summer, you get the highest, highest levels as well. So it's much more convective-driven phenomena. So, um, so why... Is that not so distributed to the west then? I think that's true to say. I think because it's a, it's where you get convective showers building up. So it's not such an orographic. Orographic tends to be sort of, I guess, more like long-term, fairly steady rainfall over a period of time. So the actual hourly accumulations themselves may not be so high. So can I infer from that that we tend to get more convective setups when we've got easterly winds? No, it's it's more sort. Of, no, it's not the wind direction so much as the temperature. Um, in the on the surface and kind of the the lapse uh, kind of the instability through the atmosphere that's important. So in, so into the southeast and East Anglia, for example, you quite often get a lot of convective rain. And that's, that's presumed because they're much warmer in general. Just yes, be- that's right. Because of and that's yeah, the and way so the you get work. those sort of events triggered more often. Yeah. Okay, and so what, in terms of flash flooding, then do we see the worst instances of that in that southeast region, or is it well, is it more complicated than that again? Well, yeah. So with flash. Yeah, that's right. It's more complicated when you translate to flooding, obviously. So kind of you get flash flooding more in small catchments and urban areas. So So urban areas is an interesting one, right? So if you look at somewhere like London, most of the ground is covered in tarmac and concrete, right? And that, that, that has implications for flooding. You've then got to like proactively design ways to remove that water uh whereas it was happening over cumbria or something the idea is it soaks into the ground in rivers and things like this so that actually makes a big difference right yeah. so how so we've talked about you know the measurements of the the 24-hour means and i guess we use i mean they're, they're buckets effectively what we're using to measure that that depth you know sometimes there might just be a static bucket that people have to go and measure it might be a tipping bucket which is sort of an automated process are they able to then capture this much uh, higher temporal resolution of information, you know, Lizzie? So there are ga- hourly gauges that work in the same way, um, but there's much fewer of them. 
Um, so most of the gauges are daily, but there's plenty of hourly hourly. So hourly is considered high resolution, right? Temporarily, yes. Yeah, I um, mean, so you could, you it wouldn't be unreasonable to want to measure rainfall, you know, on like a second by second. There's information well, there that gives there is you ten minute. Right. Okay. Gauges, but I think I don't. I'm not aware of anything higher than that. I mean, if you want really high resolution data, you'd probably have to use a different different mechanism of measurement. I think. Does anybody know about one thing? One question I had was about the annual distribution of rain. Um, you know, the climatological distribution. When does it rain more at certain times of year? Because uh, from what I can see, especially on the east coast, it's far less distributed than people might think it is. I think there's this temptation to think of all the rain happens in winter. Mm-hmm. Which is true to a certain extent when in on the West Coast, but actually in a lot of places in the UK, there's not that much of a wet season. It's just warmer when it rains in summer. So, is yes, that right? I, I don't know. And then I come back and say, do you mean the amount of rain or just the duration for which I think it's I mean raining, the amount of rain. The amount of rain. Do we get more millimeters. rain in winter? Yeah, do we get more rain in winter or not? Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll look this up, but perhaps you get the sort of more rain in shorter events during the summer and, and, and more storms coming in over the winter. Well, well, but I don't think I don't think the east coast of the UK is as affected by that more storms coming in yeah, stuff because yeah. it all rains in the west coast. So I think if you look at the, I think, right, correct me if I'm wrong. I think if you look at the seasonal cycle of rainfall over places like Glasgow, yeah. then it's more rain in winter and less rain in summer. If you go to Aberdeen or East Anglia, it's relatively constant throughout the year. There's not really a wet season, which again, so that was one of the other definitions of a rainforest. By the way, is they don't really have a dry season. So there you go. <laughs> you're just trying to claim that most That's of the right. UK is a rainforest is that where this well, is coming not, from it's surpri- I think it's surprising we're not that far off being a rainforest what about wettest places in the world we should we should name check this one before we go on as well I looked this up India, India. well all of them no, well like the <laughs> desert <laughs> it's, it's, oh it's then that Oh, it's changed name. actually this is, is a trick question uh, because you know how on qi mean. there's like the accepted wisdom answer which yeah. is sort of the correct one but then actually there's the real technical one that's technically correct so i think a lot of people say cherapunji is this in the northeast of india so it's right in the border of bangladesh um but actually lately the it's place, argyle <laughs> there's a place called Mosinram, which is just next to cherrypunji which is and the reason is here because you've got this perfect perfect storm of um huge orography yeah. with huge atmospheric instability. So a lot of people don't know. So I said Bangladesh was next door. Bangladesh, I think we've talked about before, is one of the tornado capitals of the world because there's so much instability, plus very, very warm oceans next door with lots of moisture. And so a lot of that moisture just gets rinsed out over places like Cherrapunji and Mosinram. So they have... Let's see, I need to look at my notes for this one. So Moss and Ram in 1984 had 26 metres of rain. <laughs> so that sounds pretty wet, doesn't it? That's incredible. Yeah, isn't it? In one year, 26 meters yeah. rain. Wow. We might have to look at the stats and find out how many days it doesn't rain. But yeah. I'm guessing not many. So, so I think on, on average, it's more like 11 or 12 meters in places like that. But even still, that's an awful lot more than the, how much did we say in Argyle? Two and a bit? Yeah. yeah. It's like five and times more. Presumably that area is affected by the monsoon as well. So you so, get the monsoon winds uh, bringing in a lot of moist warm air and, and getting that kind of thing that people imagine in their heads when you talk about the monsoon which is that really heavy rain actually the monsoons are a lot more as well to do with the wind flows and the direction so, so I, read, I read a really interesting book rec- which i can recommend uh, which was called chasing the monsoon a modern pilgrimage through india by a guy called alexander fratter and what he did was he started where the monsoon starts in india which is right down on the south coast and then he spent two months traveling with the monsoon which actually seems like a bit of a crazy thing to do. I imagine that was quite tricky. But he, he sort wet. of progressed up the west coast of India and then sort of across east to eventually Cherubunji was where he ended up. Um, 
So yeah, yeah, you're right. So when when we, they have the hot season in India, they get what's called a heat low over the continent, which is which builds up and builds up and ends up dragging moist warm air off the ocean until it just sort of snaps. And at that point, the monsoon, the idea is the monsoon breaks. Although it seems that the monsoon system has become a little bit complex in recent years and there's a lot of research going into why that that is right mm. but yeah that, that's the principle right and that's what makes places like Cherrapunji so very very wet much wetter than here yeah. which is probably good for us so we should talk about how we're actually looking at how we model these mm. these storms and and the rainfall and the monsoons and things like that and and the work that Lizzie you and your team are doing I guess you know you mentioned that you're doing work that's very similar to the the way we forecast rainfall and perhaps that's a good place for us to start so, well, I, I guess the, the thing that we've touched on a little bit is this idea of the different types of rainfall. So convective rainfall in particular is the one which tends to be form what we perceive as showers, so relatively patchy, quite localised. And it's this type of rainfall that coarse resolution climate models struggle with. And when um, you say coarse resolution... So, so up till now, about? typically we have climate models with 100 kilometres or coarser grid boxes so each grid box is 100 kilometers that's pretty so large if you think as, about it just as a reminder we have talked about this in previous episodes but if you imagine taking the atmosphere and chopping it up into cubes that's right. these are the size of the cubes and for yeah. each cube we calculate like one value so one temperature one amount of rainfall and, and, and that's that kind right of thing. so in in those typical models that we've typically used up till now for climate change projections so looking into the future in other words um we have to use what's called a parameterization scheme. So it's a set of equations that quite try and um, describe in simple terms what is going on within that grid box. Because obviously within that grid box, there are convective clouds, there's the storms, thunderstorms. There's things going on at much higher scales than, than so what, 100 what, kilometers. What's that? So you said these grid boxes are sort of 100 kilometers, right? And, and we're running these, what, 100 years into the future, something like that? That's right. Yeah. And, and so 100 kilometers is obviously a lot bigger than an individual cloud. That's right. So, so you have to represent the effects of the clouds using these what are called parameterization schemes. But they're obviously a simplification of what actually happens and they're a known source of deficiencies. So they lead to the timing of rainfall being wrong in the day. They don't capture individual storms and they're not designed to capture individual storms, in fact. So the, di- but, the difference is that the, the big model that models the, the values that are in those on that grid, those use pure physical laws that we've tested sort of in the Industrial Revolution in labor- laboratories and things like that. But the, the little embedded models that try and downscale and figure out what's going on inside the cubes, they're, they're approximations, is that fair? That's fair, yeah. So yeah. we have approximations, just not just for convection, but things like, we call it microphysics. So that's the how ice and rain and all the different things interact within clouds and also how the radiation. There's a quite a lot of um, th- processes that happen on scales much smaller than 100 kilometres. So you can't represent those explicitly on the grid so, so i think you said about convective rainfall you said it was like um i can't remember the exact words you said, it said patchy and like um it happens it's localized quickly. it's quite yeah. localized and it generally associated with downpours so, so i guess what i'm saying is not only are they smaller than a grid cell they're shorter than a time step as well well yeah i mean so the model model so the model time step we use in our very very high resolution models and in when we're using forecasting is the 50 second time step so that's quite short um, obviously, as you get coarser, the time step sizes increase to the order of minutes. Um, and what we so mean by the time step is, is just how, how frequently we're calculating those equations. That's right. Effectively, and yeah. how, how yeah. frequently we're resolving that's what the atmospheric right. state is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So with resolu- where the resolution. So as you get a finer resolution model, you also tend to go higher resolution time steps. So you're solving the equations many more times. And this is another reason 
why the ex- models are so expensive. Yeah, so you need a supercomputer. So you need a it. supercomputer. And we're only really now in the position where we can start to run what's what these weather forecast models in climate mode. So, i.e., we're running them over ten years or more, in both now and in the future. And it starts to give us, for the first time, a handle on how these really intense storms, these sort of summer downpours, will change in the future, because we haven't been able to look at that in the past. So, uh, do, do you? I, I, mean, I was going to say for. Uh, for contrast we should say what resolution we're currently running the weather forecast models in I, I guess at the moment which is so for the UK we're running at one, one and, and a half kilometres yeah, yeah, so yeah, which big, is very different yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's what we're, we're, we've been running in climate change mode um, with one and a half kilometres so, so what do you mean by climate change mode there Lizzie what's different about the setup of this model sort of in the okay, future so in, when you have a weather forecast model you tend to run it out for the order of a few days and you also um, read in observations as um, at the state that when you start the simulation off. In climate mode, we're not doing that. We let the model run freely, um, but it's exactly the same model in the set that it's not receiving information about the observed state. It's just running freely. And the only thing it's being driven by is um, the, the surface, sea surface temperatures, kind of large-scale dynamical fields and greenhouse gas emissions and things like that. So, so, um, so are you running a I'm climate not, model then to drive the weather model in effect? So there's there's a global model, a coarse resolution climate global model, which runs out into the future. And that's what determines kind of the changes in the large scale circulation. And then we embed a very high resolution detailed model in in some cases just for the UK. We're currently running models actually over the whole of Europe and the whole of Africa to try and understand details of how systems and storms will evolve within that context of the climate change so they're um, so they're, these are being driven by this large-scale model and it's yeah. being driven by sort of the, the greenhouse gas concentrations as if it was a, at the end of the century that's right. right is that that's right? right yeah so so the the weather model that we run the basic short-term weather model is just a model of how the atmosphere progresses but climate change has got a lot more things that matter you mentioned sea surface temperature so we sometimes you, you hear people talk, talking about coupled models and that means taking something like an atmospheric model and and also running an ocean model and making the two talk to each other you couple them together and actually in climate change there's a lot of things we need to couple in right so so you're sort of taking that coupling from the climate change world and running that forward into the future and then using that to to start off a weather model you're not starting the weather model now and just waiting for 100 years because it doesn't know how the ocean is going to change so we haven't yet but we are about to, we're kind of moving in that direction. So you're going to couple the weather model no. to an open ocean model? No, we're not. Okay. Cu- we're not coupling with an ocean, but okay. we are. We are setting a model off to run for longer, longer periods of time. But it's true that these very high resolution models at the moment are just atmosphere models, so they have to receive information about how the sea temperatures are evolving and sea ice is evolving through time. Um, and so, as you were saying, for the weather forecast perspective, we get that because we've got loads of observations, we've got satellite data, we've got measurement stations, we've got lots of other things. Whereas in the future, we don't have any of those observations. And so you need to kind of auto- almost recreate what those observations are going to be by using the, the bigger right. scale climate models. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not, and we're not nudging in the interior. So there's no sort of every few hours pushing the, the model to the observed state, which is obviously what we do within a forecast. And the climate... There's no once it's running in the interior, we don't. We just let it go. Let it go exactly. Another thing that's worth saying about the weather forecast is that these things, like sea surface temperature, they don't really change fast enough to be affecting the weather forecast for the next three days. You know, they're changing on a slower type climatological timescales or you know seasonal timescales maybe. So at the minute, we just don't bother, right? We assume the sea surface. Well, in fact, we don't tell anything about the sea surface temperature. That's implicit from the atmospheric observations that we give the model, right, in the weather forecast. 
So, Lizzie, I know that you were you um, were lead author on a paper from 2014, um, and that you've got a, your co-author on a paper uh, really recently. I think. Um, uh, could you explain some of the results? And I, I guess you, are you looking at what the what the state of the rainfall is in, at the end of the century? Yeah. So, okay. So we published um, back in 2014 the first long climate simulation with a one and a half kilometer model, and that was but that was only over the southern half of the UK because that's all we could afford to run at the time. And that showed some quite exciting results, which for the for the first time it showed this tendency for summer downpours to become heavy in future. So this was in contrast to what t- traditional climate models show, which didn't show any change at all. So it's quite a different signal. Um, so it's, a, it's a physical sort of intuition and understanding about why that happens. Yeah. So the reason the reason is so in these high resolution models, you're you don't. Well, so I started talking a little about convection parameterization schemes. So this kind of way that you simplify the representation of convection. In in these very high resolution models, sort of the order of a kilometer grid spacing, you don't need to parameterize convection anymore. You let the model do it completely explicitly on the grid. So there's no simplifi- no simplification going in there. It just solves the equations. So the model so, has the temperature, so the model, it's got the air Yeah, so rising. the updrafts are going up. Now obviously one kilometer is still a bit coarse for that, but it's looking pretty it looks pretty reasonable and it's able to represent the updrafts, downdrafts and how convection occurs. Now in climate change, the important aspect of the signal is kind of these feedbacks, dynamical feedbacks, so how updrafts and things respond to the increase in buoyancy, the temperature, the more moisture. And that that feedback is missing in the course models, but is captured in these high resolution models, and that's what's giving you the different signal. Of so, because changes. we can resolve this different sort of regime of physics, that's why this approach is now getting this signal that wasn't apparent before. And then, can I? Can I? So, is this signal happening at all? Is the reason climate change is causing this? Because there's more, you know, hear people glibly saying there's more energy in the atmosphere, right? We're going to be storing more energy in the Earth system through the um, through kind of global warming and the, the greenhouse gas effect, and that's that's providing more energy and more also more water vapor into the atmosphere, which I think we've talked before in the podcast. Incre- it decreases the stability because of you get latent heat from water and stuff. I don't know if that's something we want to go into, but are, th- are those the things that that cause more convective rainfall um, in the future as opposed to now? So, so okay, so the first, yeah, the first thing is in a warmer atmosphere, the, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. In somewhere like the UK where the supply of moisture isn't particularly limited, the moisture can go up with the temperature and it goes up with what's termed cloudy's clapron, so about 7% for every degree warming. And the course models, traditional climate models, capture that. That's a basic physical process, and they capture that. And that's what drives future changes in mean rainfall, typically winter rainfall, daily extremes. And so when we look at those types of things, there's no difference between the very high-resolution models and the coarser models in terms of their changes. But it's not just that there's more water to rain out, right? It's also that there's more water to release latent heat into the atmosphere and cause instabilities. So I was getting getting onto that. So then what happens is in these very high resolution models, you get this latent heating. So not only you have more moisture, but they release more heat. So you get a kind of a more buoyancy. And so the actual, although you've got more moisture, you can also have more of a vigorous updraft. And rainfall is a combination of moisture content and updraft. It's the product of the two, in fact. And so what happens in these high resolution models, we don't only just have more moisture at this 7% per Kelvin, but we also have more vigorous updrafts and the two to combine together to give kind of an amplified. Now, those sort of processes can only operate on a short time scale because eventually you rain out your water and you're done. So on a short time scale, sort of hourly time scales, up possibly up to daily, you can see this effect. 
as you go for long periods of time, you get intense rain, but then you get gaps between the rain, like a recharge or something, if you want to think about it that way. So on average, the the model, the coarse models and the high resolution models give a roughly a similar answer of how mean rainfall will change. But on the short time scales, when you're interested in kind of individual storm sort of effects, then you see quite a different response. That's really interesting. So the models are telling you the same overall general picture. But now that you're able to kind of dig in and pick out the detail, we're starting to see that it's going to be these intense storms are going to be more intense. Like you were saying earlier, we tend to see those storms in the summer periods and things like that. And actually, they're going to get heavier yeah but in more but but in general the rainfall gets more intense but it occurs less off less often on the short time scales that's right absolutely and that's what we see and and there's evidence of that in observations too i mean it's not just a model world phenomena we understand it theoretically so it it, is not a surprise in some ways but it's really important to see it in these models because it for the first time we can start to tell people who are interested in flooding you know how important what you know what likely changes are for flash flooding things like that because that's what's, what's the sort of magnitude of uh, of the changes Lizzie? So, you know how much how much more intense are these events okay so uh i mean uh, broadly it's, it's it's fine so well so for the the recent results that we've just come out which is looking at the northern uk changes for the first time we looked at something like the five year return level and now we're talking about increases the order of 40 to 50% okay um, so, so the return level is that's, that's the, the that's the amount of rain which typically occurs once every five every years. Every five years, like, like the maximum. Now, yeah. and, in, and, and it'd be increasing by about 40 to 50% in future. So we're talking about quite big changes. So presumably that won't be one in five years anymore, right? No, that's right. Okay, so cool. the frequency yeah. is no longer one. So we're putting into the context of what people perceive as a, an yeah, extreme event now. I always think return times are sort of like a confusing, like a funny thing in climate change, aren't they? Because they're very much defined from what we've seen. And the whole point is that they're going to change. I guess that's the but, point yeah. you're making, right? But yeah. another, way of, another, way, another way of thinking about it. So th- if you th- think of a fixed threshold, say 30 millimetres an hour, and this is something we discussed in the very early paper, because that's a t- traditional or typical threshold used by the flood forecasting center for flash flooding so that type of event becomes almost five times more frequent in future so that's kind of a you Gosh. can think of it like that if that helps that's quite striking that <laughs> so yeah that five times more frequent for that sort of threshold for flash flooding and and do you see i know you're studying different areas and, and you're kind of expanding the regions you're looking at is that signal quite equal across the country or, or do you see variation so as to where that's so we just just looked at the northern UK and actually changes in the northern UK are more than in the southern UK. But really? we're okay. talking, you know, so the southern UK, um, the five year return level was a 10% increase in the northern UK. It's more like a more than it's more than that. It's or was it sorry, it was 20% and it's about 10% more in the northern UK. So there is some variation, but not hugely so. Um, I mean, obviously, when we look at different parts of the world, the signal is different. But I think the general, the general consistent result coming out from everything that we've done is if we start to resolve in detail these processes, we generally get a more of an intensification of this higher rain that we've than we've seen in the past. And since 2010, um, have I mean these things are really expensive to run. You, yeah. You've mentioned that we need big supercomputers. Have other sort of national met services started to uh, look at this kind of projection and run their own? And yeah. are they telling them telling them the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, for example, we work quite closely with people in um, Switzerland. So ETH Zurich. Run, are running a very similar experiment to ours at the moment over Europe and quantitatively they produce very similar results even though they have different sort of model setups so that's reassuring um, but I think it raises an important point so up till now all 
experiments that have been done by ourselves and other increasingly other institutions around the world have only been able to run a single realization with a model like this. You've run one look at the future and you've got no idea how likely that is, um, but it's a plausible outcome. So what we're moving to now with um, the next set of climate, UK climate projections, this is UK CP18, is to try and produce multiple different realizations sampling different uncertainties to, to allow us for the first time really to get some handle on uncertainties and um, so that's kind of the next big step I think in this area and there's lots of efforts also coordinated across Europe for example where lots of different organizations are trying to run their models in these very high resolution setups and then we would compare and contrast results so we get a sense of uncertainty that way as well. So could you use this approach to research what changes have happened in the UK already and try and attribute the likelihood of those being from anthropogenic climate change or just being due to kind of noise and weather? Is that something people have thought about doing? So, so yeah, the, well, the science of attribution uses models sort of with current setups and then with um, the world as would have been, they term it, without the forcings. That hasn't been done at these very high resolutions yet. Um, I think in part because of the cost of doing that, but there's no reason why it couldn't be done in the future. But I think um, what we have done is using, so we've used these models to try and look at um, something that is would, would be directly relevant for those studies when changes would emerge through time. So we've, we've recently been published a paper on this where we've been using these very high resolution models to determine when we might expect to start to see in the observations these changes emerging, because obviously there's a lot of variability um, especially in these very high resolution, these are extreme of things. And looking through time, we can use the models to identify when we think we could start to say, are oh, these signals will now emerge in the observations? And so we could detect them and attribute them appropriately. So when when do you think that that might start to become so apparent? In, so winter 2040s seems to be the sort of timescale we're looking longer in summer. But yeah, it's the, it's the, interestingly, it's the changes in the short duration events. So the events important for flash flooding, which emerge first because because the signal of change in those is, is that bit larger so it's useful to compare that maybe with uh with the science of attribution when it comes to sort of global temperatures yeah. for example and it just highlights i guess the difference between uh temperatures and the measurement of temperature and and rainfall itself yeah. which is inherently more variable yeah, where exactly. the attribution you know the attribution studies have been done and that signal emerged in the 70s, 80s, 90s? I, I can't remember. But, 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 for, for global but, surface temperature. But, but, yeah, for global temperature surface temperature. different, yeah, that's So right. t- temperature drives the rainfall yeah. effectively, yeah. right? Yeah. One's a result, a symptom of the other. Yeah, so yeah, so attribution has been very successful for temperature, but for rainfall, particularly on the local scale, it's not yet been possible to say for sure any trends or anything that we've perhaps seen in the observations are de- definitely attributable to human factors. We haven't been able to do that because of the p- natural variability, sometimes on long time scales. That was um, what I was going to ask. So it's, it's purely down to the, the, the magnitude of the variability, variability that just yeah. happens naturally, that yeah. Yeah. it's going to take a, at least another 20 years, or so yeah. you're saying, before yeah. you could start that signal will yeah. be strong enough, or the trend will be strong enough to sort of For get the above. UK. So it depends yeah, on the ratio of signal to noise and I mean, the particular thing you're thinking about. If you, if you average over the whole of the northern hemisphere land, then you can, att- you can now see changes and attribute them. And as studies have been done, was a study done back in 2011, I think, on that. But when you come down to local scales, so what we're interested in for the UK or some other little local patch of the world where you live, it takes longer because the variability is that much more. Yeah, I think this is this is one of the 
I wonder if you guys agree with this. This is sort of one of the hot research areas in climate science at the minute, which is that the kind of global average stuff has kind of had a lot of research done in, in over the past few decades. And that, dare I say, is starting to get a consensus about it. Whereas really where the, the really interesting science is at the minute is going to that statistically kind of harder thing which is a very downscale now which is more relevant to making policy decisions and things like this you know the statistics get harder like you say and the the kind of i guess the, the burden of proof or the, the, the strength of the signal that you need in order to be able to really see it is greater so that's you know i, I guess we, I, you mentioned uk cp18 lizzie yeah. could, could you um just to pick up on that neil um could you talk about what uk cp18 is and what the met office are doing um for it Okay, so UKCP18 is a next set of UK climate projections. So this is an update to UKCP09, which was released in 2009. So it is an, it's an update in terms of um, not just the high-resolution simulations, which we've been talking about here, but also we're doing a whole new set of global simulations as well um, and a new set of um, probability forecasters and PDFs are com- coming out as well. But within on this particular area of high resolution, we're running an ensemble of simulations over the UK at 2.2 kilometer resolution. Um, and we'll be providing um, some information, both guidance to users on where they should use this data, where it's appropriate for their application, and there'll be data available so on the website. How far is that projecting into the future then? So up to the end of the century, so 2080. So, okay, so, so we've got, almost got a weather forecast resolution type. You've got to be very careful field. when you talk about weather forecast. Weather yeah. forecast type, <laughs> type, type, type resolution, resolution data. But, but it's interesting um, the users you mentioned users there, Lizzie. Yeah. Like um, so, so there's a collection of simulations of what the climate might look like, sort of plausible, mm. um, plausible right. futures, what the UK climate might look like. But who are the who are those users? Who are the target you talked about decision makers, Neil? Who are those who are the target um, users for right. this information? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a whole range. So people that are particularly interested in getting this very detailed sort of realizations of people who are interested in hydrological modeling obviously but also urban um effects so f- building thermal building design and things like this so first policy makers government and then po- and policy makers mm. obviously the the interest here is um what sort of flooding how are we going to have to adapt what what will we need to adapt to but um, also informing mitigation policy as well. We talked earlier about tarmac and concrete in, in housing developments. And, you know, we're building a lot of houses in the UK at the minute. That's a really classic example of to future-proof those towns, which are going to be around in 50 or 100 years' time. Yeah. Is there something we need to be thinking about how we design those now so they can deal with what the climate's going to look like then? That's right. So, yeah, yeah that's okay. Exactly that. So more resilient buildings, and that will be appropriate for a longer time. And I think... Yeah, so, so there's a lot of applications for this detailed data. And also for a lot of these things, they need some sort of uncertainty estimate. So what's the likely range of changes or what's an outlier? It depends on the application, what's appropriate. So that's what we're trying to provide really for the first time to give a range of changes um, going out to 2080. So you've mentioned a few impacts there potentially. I, I guess that kind of brings us nicely towards, you know, wrapping up maybe, which is, you know, what are some of the impacts that we see from rain? Well, today, but also thinking now about the fact that we're going to get much more intense rain in the future and, you know, yeah, land surface flooding where there's more tarmac. But I, I'm assuming there are other impacts of heavy intense rainfall as, as well as just you know the few Presumably things we've the talked flip about. side of, of flooding and more intense rain is you're going to have more drought conditions as well right because 
instead of getting lots of steady rain, we're taking a similar or I believe even kind of lesser amount of total rain, but distributing it more in more volat- vol- volatilely. Is that a word? <laughs> in a more, yeah. more volatile manner. So, yeah, yeah so for in the UK in, in summer in particular, we expect mean rainfall to decrease. That isn't true in winter. Mean rainfall is actually increasing. So you've got more intense rain and more overall totals. But I think in summer where we potentially we're more vulnerable to um, say water shortages and so on, we do expect an overall drying, although the intense events themselves are increasing. So yes, so it, it's important because not only the soil conditions are important for how flooding occurs and how severe it is, but also important for water availability, how we store water and all sorts of things. So yeah, it's not just the extremes, it's the whole distribution of rain and how it occurs. And Counterintuitively, if you've got drought conditions, then you rain onto it, you're more likely to get flooding, that's right? right. Because yeah. the earth's been baked dry that's and right. it doesn't soak yeah. away. So yes. yeah, it gets complicated. But it gets right? complicated <laughs> because if it's actually more drizzly type rain, then actually it's better to have dry conditions because it can kind of seep in and the ground can absorb. It's very complicated and I'm no expert that's in that area. So the type of rain models. is important. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So um, okay, yeah, you completely flipped on its head by saying, I'm going to talk about the impacts of drought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which has thrown me completely. But Lizzie, you mentioned um, like drinking water and, and I guess water res- resources and reservoirs and things like that is... You know, we're talking a lot about flooding causing issues, but but presumably there will be knock-ons on on that sort of water resource as well. Yes, that's right. So, um, you know, how how rainfall is distributed across the country, you know, how, when when the recharge may occur, um, you know, whether whether we see a distant distribution across the year. There's a whole host of changes that that we need to make sure that we're very clear about to help inform policy. And I think. That's something that we're, we're trying to do um, increasingly. I think, I think, just for the record now that we're finishing up, I think this is really cool research. Like, this is it's really awesome to see, I don't know, a big climate research institute with lots of resources like a supercomputer and see how all that is actually useful to people, useful to yeah, the UK. There's a lot of a lot of work going on in the UKCP that I've seen lots of people in the building who are doing various aspects of it, from everything from the, you know, the, the hardcore physics that we're talking about all the way through to... How do you communicate some of this stuff? How do you communicate uncertainty? How do you talk to policymakers who uh, uh, might be across a really wide range of applications? I mean, this is one of the cool things I like about working at the Met Office, right, is that we're, we're able to take the, the pure research stuff, but then also, hopefully, we connect it back in stuff that can really be useful for the UK. So, you know, it's nice to hear about that. Exactly. That's a perfect place to stop. I was just thinking, you know, we in Britain, we love talking about the weather, particularly the rain. But hopefully those of you being listening today will be able to take a slightly more educated view of, you know, talking about the, the rain to, to the people you talk with. And, you know, don't just complain about it. There's yeah. really interesting stuff in there. So, well, thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Lizzie. That's been Thanks, really Lizzie. fascinating. Yeah. Um, we will get some uh, relevant information, maybe some pictures if we've got anything, um, Lizzie's paper, hopefully, onto the show notes, and you'll be able to find those uh, on the Met Office website. So that's metoffice.gov.uk forward slash mostly hyphen weather forward slash episode 25. Um, you can leave us a review on wherever you've downloaded this podcast from that would be great we love to get feedback um, we love to hear your views if there's anything you'd like us to talk about in a future episode please do get in touch via twitter at at mw underscore podcast so that's mw for mostly weather and thank you all very much for listening thanks everybody bye goodbye bye